this is Kara Foster from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Madisonville, Kentucky, and you're listening to our sermons podcast. And if you want to find out more information, you can connect with us at www.madisonvilledisciples.org or come in person at 1030 College Drive, uh, Madisonville, Kentucky. Subscribe and enjoy these podcasts. to uh, begin our sermon this morning. I want to go ahead and read uh, our scripture. I know we usually get to it as it goes in, but I have a feeling not a lot of folks know much about the wonderful and small book of Philemon, so I thought I would go ahead and give us a context. So if you're reading along, we're going to be, there's only one chapter in Philemon, so it's not hard to find. We're going to start at verse 7 and read through 17. Paul writes to his friend, I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am more than bold enough in Christ to command you to do the right thing, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might minister to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back for the long term. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to me. With Kara not being able to be here today, we decided to pause our Lord's Prayer series so that Kara has the opportunity to finish it herself next Sunday. So I was given kind of a blank slate, and I decided to talk about one of my favorite overlooked books in the New Testament, Philemon. See, the Bible has a reputation, right, of being a huge book, both in impact and in physical size. I remember the big Bible we used to keep on the coffee table, or I guess right under the coffee table. I mean, it was the biggest book I had ever seen growing up. It has books in it like the Psalms, 151 songs and prayers and chapters. It has books in the Old Testament full of begets and begots and beignets and everything in between. Oh, sorry, I was in New Orleans. I just uh, must still be on my mind. It has a lot of stories, but it also has a reputation for having a little bit of filler. Right, A lot of those begets and begots lead into this was a good king, this was a bad king, and then nothing really happens. Some books like Philemon may get overlooked or ignored because they're so short, because they're viewed as not being as deep or as rich. But I think it would be a problem to ignore the valuable things we can learn from Philemon and all the other small books throughout the Bible. And Philemon is a very small book. We find towards the end of the New Testament, it only has about 25 verses, and six of those are hellos and goodbyes. I always said Paul must be Southern because of how long it takes him to say hello and how long it takes him to say goodbye. 
Paul also was an avid letter writer. We see letters attributed to him being written to large communities and churches and individuals. So Philemon is written by Paul while he is in prison. There obviously isn't a lot of words or content inside the letter, but it paints us an interesting picture of a friendship and the appeal. As we read before the sermon, this is a writing between friends. It's Paul reminding Philemon how loved he is both in the eyes of God and in Paul's own eyes. The opening shows us the type of relationship that exists between the two men. Paul is in prison, but he is also as close to a celebrity in the Christian world as you could get outside of Jesus. Paul's status is beyond dispute this late in his life, even though he chooses to ignore that when he talks to his friend Philemon. In the first verse, he calls him my beloved co-worker, making sure that they are on equal footing in the eyes of God. At this point, Paul's stories of starting churches and preaching and witnessing would have been known in every Christian community in the Near East, both Christian and Jewish and Gentile. But if you are Philemon, you are getting a letter from the biggest name in Christianity today. He has written to you and decided to open very flatteringly. You got to feel good if you're Philemon. But I have a feeling if this book was just a letter about how great Philemon was, we probably wouldn't have included it in the New Testament. The nice opening sets the stage for the real and hard conversation that Paul is wanting to have. Paul moves from his friendly greeting onto the matter of which he wrote the letter. Many Bibles label it as the plea for Onesimus. Sorry, that's a hard word to say, and I'm practicing it every time I say it. So who is Onesimus? To put it plainly, he was a person who Paul met while they were in prison together, and he had wronged Philemon in some way. Onesimus either became a Christian in prison or was already a Christian and met Paul, and Paul became his mentor. In these verses, we see Paul ask Philemon to do what Paul believes is his duty as a believer, and not only forgive Onesimus, but welcome him back into the community as an equal. This is not an unusual call. We have seen it throughout the New Testament, whether it's the prodigal son's father welcoming him back or Jesus welcoming Peter back after his denial with breakfast on a beach. But what is new is Onesimus is a slave who is owned by Philemon. We don't know the specifics of his enslavement, but we know that he was owned by Philemon, and at some point they were separated. It's assumed by most scholars that Onesimus ran away or somehow conned his way out of working for Philemon, and so he fled and was captured. Paul even offers to make right the debt that Onesimus owes at the end of the letter. This would explain why the letter was written at all. Onesimus was to be taken back to Philemon and he could be punished or killed however Philemon saw fit. In the eyes of Rome and most people in Rome, Onesimus was nothing but a piece of property. He could be discarded as easily as one would throw away a broken table or a damaged cup. Despite the circumstances of how they met in prison together, Paul developed a liking to Onesimus. And so he feels led to write Philemon because of his love for both of them. Paul uses the same affectionate language to describe his relationship with Onesimus that he uses to describe his relationship with Philemon, like 
so many other times in Jesus' ministry. Paul is elevating someone who would naturally be considered beneath the people in the story and those who are reading it afterwards. This equality extends further when Paul implies, asks, not demands, that Onesimus be freed by Philemon upon his return to him. One of my favorite things is Paul ends this letter by asking Philemon to prepare a room for him so he can visit soon as a reminder to Philemon that whatever choice he makes will impact the community. This is a short, one-sided conversation. We don't have a conclusion. Unfortunately, there's no check-in later to see if Philemon did free Onesimus or if he returned to Philemon in good health. This whole letter is a plea for the freedom and dignity of Onesimus from one Christian to another. And I think there's two really big ideas that we can get from this one-sided correspondence. And the first gives us a template on how to correct someone and advocate for those who you believe have been wronged. I want to look at the verse right before where we started reading today. Paul says, when I mention you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. Paul has a reputation for being quite bullish in Scripture. He's a little hard-headed. He defies the council in Jerusalem. He writes and critiques churches all over the world, and he is constantly battling groups that he believes are misrepresenting the gospel. But in this book, he's gentle. He's tactful. And that's because he knows Philemon. He begins by reminding him about how much he cares for him as a Christian and as a person. He prays for him, thanks God for him, and remembers the good deeds that Philemon is doing for his church and for those around him. Philemon and him are close. Paul knows him, and he knows Paul. There's no need for fiery language or grandstanding or pretending. Paul comes at this issue honestly and with care. He knows that correction outside of relationship is nothing but criticism. And even if the person is coerced to do the right thing, probably will resent you for it. Paul values everyone involved. And so he knows his correction must be steeped in the same love that that guides the relationship he has with both these people. It seems like today there's a lot of ways to correct people without being in relationship with them. Even when you're close to someone, how many of us have gotten into a disagreement in a place that should be a little safer? Small group Sunday school class, anyone? Maybe a dinner with close friends? Anyone ever disagreed with somebody there? Ooh, how about a family reunion? Anybody ever gotten a disagreement with your family before? Not to mention the minefield that is Facebook and other social media platforms. They don't help us when we try to disagree with each other. Too often, our first goal is to seek to defend our points and attack the other side. We disregard that relationship when we feel the desire to correct. Paul shows us that is the wrong way to correct someone. If someone comes to your job and you've never met them and they start telling you how to do it, that is going to drive you crazy. And whether they have good points or not, it's going to be less than likely that you pay attention to them. One time, I was uh, particularly busy during a lunch rush when I was a dishwasher back in Tennessee. 
I was dealing with a sink that was constantly clogged. I had my head down, one side of the sink filled with dishes, the other side filling with water. And this gentleman walks in with a tie, and he tries to get me to stop. He tries talking to me. I ignore him the first couple of times because I'm busy. Uh, And finally, he kind of raises his voice at me. And so I decide to raise my voice back at this person who I have never met before. And I don't think you would would, uh, classify the quality of the discourse as glorifying to God in that moment. Uh, Just as our exchange was getting heated, my manager runs up to me, he puts my arm around me, and he introduces me to the county health inspector, who was none too happy to be disrespected by a lowly dishwasher. Needless to say, my gifts were neither in dishwashing or local government relations, neither, not good at either one of them. But there was no relationship there. Paul is putting aside his ego as the biggest figure in this new movement called Christianity and speaking to his friend, honestly and openly, guided by his prayer life, but also guided by his desire to preserve his relationships, to preserve the love between Philemon and himself and himself and Onesimus. We're called to do the same. We're called to put aside our own egos and our relationships and remember to approach each person in our community with love and grace, even when the disagreement is something as large as the freedom of another person. If you hear people talk about our country, you'll hear it described as individualistic, which means the prevailing philosophy in our society puts the value of the individual over the group. You can argue about that all you want, but that's the idea. And it's normal for us, but it was completely alien to the people in this story. Everyone had a place, and that place in the world helped the empire, the collective, run smoothly. If you were a conquered people, you were beneath the Romans. As the Jewish people were, they told you how to worship and when to worship and where to worship. Maybe you were a slave, maybe you weren't. If you were a woman, you were lower than a man. If you were not a citizen, you were lower than a citizen. And there were very few ways to ever change that. Our society, education is more available. The ability to become a citizen exists. We can alter our place somewhat through hard work, through a system that allows advancement. This was not the reality of Rome. Where you were born is where you stayed. And that was important to the empire. And that's what makes Paul's letter so much more radical than we think today. He was advocating for the individual importance of a slave. He was saying that Onesimus is the same as the biggest figure in Christianity at the time, just because God loves him. And he should be an equal part of the community, just as Paul is and as Philemon is. Paul is a Roman citizen. He knows what he's asking. It's illegal to free a slave at this point. Advocating for his equal treatment is revolutionary. Paul's way ahead of his time. It would take many other Christians many centuries to come to the same conclusion. He never says, free Onesimus or God will never forgive you. Paul never says, free Onesimus or you are no longer welcome in the kingdom of God. Paul never says, free Onesimus or me and you are finished. Paul rejects the ultimatum of being so black and white when it comes to his relationships and his forgiveness. Paul believes that Philemon is a good Christian who Paul prays for and is in community with. He believes he will do the right thing as he is led by God. And that sounds really hopeful. 
and a little bit pie in the sky and possibly a little too good to be true. But it's what Paul is showing us here. He's giving him the benefit of the doubt. When I was thinking about where I get to practice the lessons Paul shows us in Philemon, I think about camp. Camp is not a place that can run without building relationships so that correction can be made in a healthy way. And camp cannot work if everyone doesn't believe that we're equal. Everyone has to wear their name tags, much to the dismay of half the kids at camp. Everyone eats at the same time. Everyone gets the same opportunities to swim and use the gaga ball pit and, use, and lead vespers. The counselors have to pay attention to make sure the camps get used in an equal way. We have to correct things when campers push boundaries that threaten the equality that we're seeking to achieve. An adult leader makes sure when campers are picking teams that everyone's picked. If a student can't run or doesn't thrive at a certain activity, it's our responsibility to make sure there's other ways that are easy for them to show who they are. A hierarchy is something we try to avoid. Directors, counselors, campers across all ages sweat together. We eat the same food, unless you're allergic, and we sleep in the same cabins. This helps everyone buy in, in a way that allows us to create a community quickly. Because we were in relationship, when small corrections are needed, like make sure you put on sunscreen, or make sure you go get your name tag so you can go swim, or make sure the balls you are using get put up, or stop playing basketball, it's time for small group. No one gets upset or offended, except the kid who only wants to play basketball and not go to small group. Because we're trying to create a community, and hopefully by the end of the week, everyone understands why we do what we do. So where can we create the community that Paul lays out here, that we try to achieve at Camp KBY? In what ways can we be in prayer for each other so that when we do feel the Spirit lead us, we can say something freely in love that we believe needs to be said? How can we say it? How can we approach the person not from a place of superiority, but from a spirit of meekness and vulnerability? How can we seek not to control the situation, but leave the other person's heart intact? so that God can continue the work that God led you to begin in the first place. There's no one-size-fits-all answers, either in the book of Philemon or, honestly, in our own day-to-day -day lives. But this book, this letter of love, written by one person who loves another person on behalf of another person he loves, it tells us that this is the way to open our hearts to love freely. Now, the book of Philemon never tells us what happens to Onesimus. But if we stand by the simple principles that Paul illustrates here, we can at least know that we, as individuals, are growing. I think those are this. Correction outside of genuine love and relationship is futile. It's ineffective. And to know that each person is loved equally by God exactly how they were made. And we must live our lives like we believe this principle. And of course, we must pray and support others like we believe these principles. By living these two things, we may not be able to save the world, but we may be able to save the relationships in our lives. And some would say that saving the relationships in our lives is the biggest step we can make to saving the world. Amen. Amen.